This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Top 5 Most Terrifying Stalkers They always know where you are. They know what you like and what you don't like. And they are intent in making you notice them. There are hundreds of stalkers out there, and the ones on this list not only harassed their victims, but took it a step further. These are the top five most terrifying stalkers. Number five, the Q Kendall family. It started with a text message. It was 2007 when 16-year-old Courtney Q Kendall of Furcrest, Washington, said her phone started sending text messages to her friends without her doing anything. Soon it evolved into phone calls by someone with a scratchy voice and everyone in the family began receiving them. The family tried to trace the call, but it would only list the number as restricted. Terrified, they contacted police, showing how their phones would send messages on their own, turn on and off without prompting, and change ringtones by themselves. When the harasser called, the Furcrest police attempted to trace it, but to their surprise, it led back to the family's phones. This happened even when the phones were turned off, and then the threats became more menacing. Heather Q. Kendall said the calls were soon filled with hate and would come at all hours of the day and night. The stalker would tell the family they were going to be murdered. He also relayed things only the family knew about, like if they were or weren't home, who was in the house, what they were doing, and even detailing what they were wearing at the time. The family also received recorded messages of private family conversations. At one point, after speaking with a detective, the stalker called them and played a recording of the conversation they had with the detective back to them. The family took steps and installed a new security system, but the caller told them what security code they used. They also switched phones and different accounts on three occasions, but it was always the same thing. Even though the call started with the Q Kendalls, Two other families began receiving the stalker's harassment. This included Heather's sister, Darcy Price, and the Q Kendall's neighbors, the McKays. One time, Andrew McKay received a call from the stalker claiming that while their kids were in school, there was going to be a school shooting. Another call was to Andrew's wife, who was cutting lemons at the time of the call, and the mysterious caller told her, I prefer limes. The Furcrest police, while helpful, were unsure of how to proceed because during the time, they weren't equipped to handle cybercrime. They reached out to the Department of Homeland Security, 
who for a time looked at 16-year-old Courtney as a possible suspect because the calls originated from her phone. But not all of them did, and how a young girl could outsmart the police and Homeland Security's technology is hard to understand. In the end, despite the extensive investigation, there's no word of whether the case was solved at all or the culprit apprehended. Number 4. Richard Farley The oldest of six children, Richard Farley was a military man's son. Because of this, the family moved a lot before settling in Sunnyvale, California. After graduating high school, Farley joined the United States Navy, staying there for 10 years. After he left, he began working at ESL Incorporated as a software technician, and it was here that he first met Laura Black. 22-year-old Laura Black also worked at the company as an electronics engineer. She was young, smart, pretty, and friendly. In April of 1984, the two crossed paths and Farley was instantly smitten. For him, it was love at first sight, but for Black, it would be the start of an endless nightmare. Farley began asking her out. Black politely but firmly declined, but this didn't stop his advances. He continued leaving her gifts, love letters, baked goods, and of course, he kept asking her out. Frustrated, Farley tricked HR into giving him Black's home address and phone number, including access to her confidential file. Soon, he started showing up at Black's aerobics classes. Black reported the harassment and asked HR for help. The company responded by instructing Farley to attend psychological counseling, which he did, but this didn't stop him. By 1986, several co-workers tried to intervene, but instead of responding positively, Farley became violent and threatened them. HR informed him that his actions were illegal, and then the company fired him in May of 1986. He started working for ESL's rival and even became engaged to another woman, but he never stopped stalking Black. Farley continued to write letters to her, threatening her not to push him because he was getting tired of being nice. In January of 87, Black found a note taped to her car, including a copy of her apartment key. She realized how vulnerable she had become and decided to seek a restraining order. The day he received that restraining order, Farley began planning his revenge. He bought over $2,000 worth of ammunition and guns. The effective date for the restraining order was February 17th, and so the day before, on the 16th, he headed to ESL. Armed with guns and ammunition and dressed in military fatigues, he started his rampage. He killed his first victim, Larry Kane, as he moved across the parking lot. He blasted through the security glass and began shooting people as they ducked for cover. Farley then made his way to Black's office, where he fired at her twice. The first one missed, but the other hit her shoulder, rendering her unconscious. He left her office and shot other people who were hiding under desks or inside their offices. A SWAT team surrounded the building, including snipers, but Farley remained on the move. A negotiator was called in. Farley told them he brought his equipment to shoot people and that he had certain targets in mind. He never expressed remorse over what he did and admitted he didn't know the other victims except for Laura Black. In the end, Richard decided to surrender to the police when he felt hungry, ending his five-hour siege in exchange for a sandwich. He had killed seven people and wounded four others, including Laura, 
who survived the entire ordeal. Farley was charged with seven counts of murder, assault with a deadly weapon, vandalism, and second-degree burglary. He was found guilty and sentenced to death and currently is still sitting on death row. Number 3. Ming Shu Born in Taiwan, Ming Shu and his family moved to Minnesota in 1958 when he was 8 years old. As a young child, Ming had issues. He was violent, started fires in three apartments and threw rocks at vehicles. His mother said he was uncontrollable and that they lived in fear of him because he never felt remorse for what he had done. While in high school in Roseville, Minnesota, he met Mary Stauffer, his ninth grade teacher. Ming became infatuated with her and began sexually fantasizing about her. These fantasies involved consensual sex, rape, and gang rape. However, Ming realized that despite his fantasies, his satisfaction was incomplete. Sometime between 1965 and 1975, he decided he would kidnap Mary to make his dreams become a reality. For some reason, he believed Mary was living in Duluth, Minnesota. He broke into her supposed home and found her in-laws there instead. He tied them up and threatened them at gunpoint to never tell anyone. Mary and her family were in the Philippines during the time doing Christian missionary work, and for the next four years, Ming looked for her. By 1979, Mary and her family returned to Minnesota, where they lived at the Bethel University campus. On May 16, 1980, Ming stalked Mary at a beauty salon in Roseville and kidnapped her and her eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. He tied them up and placed them in the trunk of his car. Mary and Elizabeth made so much noise, though, Ming had to stop the car on two separate occasions. The second time he did, the noise attracted six-year-old Jason Wilkman, who approached the vehicle to see what was happening. Ming then grabbed him and threw him inside the trunk as well. He drove several miles away into the Carlos Avery Wildlife Refuge in Anoka County, then removed the little boy from the trunk. Ming later went on to tell Mary that he had left Jason behind and threatened to kill him, but it was later discovered he had violently killed the young boy, bashing his head in with a metal rod. He then drove Mary and Elizabeth to his home and locked them in a narrow closet. That same night, he spoke with Mary and explained who he was. He told her he was her student 15 years ago. She gave him a B in algebra, which led to him not being admitted to college. He was then drafted to Vietnam and became a POW, but all this was a lie. From there on out, Ming began raping Mary whenever he pleased. Over time, he began loosening up and allowed Mary some freedom as he relaxed into the fantasy of the three becoming a family. On July 7th, Mary and Elizabeth were kept at home but confined to a much larger closet. When Ming left for work, Mary was able to pry open a bolt from the door hinge. Despite being bound together, the mother and daughter reached a phone and called the police. They managed to head outside and hide until a squad car arrived, and they were finally rescued after seven weeks in captivity. Ming was arrested without incident at his workplace. In September of 1980, he was tried for rape and kidnapping and found guilty on all accounts. He was sentenced to life with the eligibility for parole in 30 years. The following year in 1981, after a plea bargain with police in exchange for disclosing information on where Jason Wilkman's body was located, Ming was tried for murder. Number 2. 
During the trial, Mary testified against him, and Ming broke away from security and slashed her face using a hidden pocket knife. Ming was eligible for parole in July of 2010, but Anoka County District Judge Jenny Jasper ruled that he would never be released to the public since he is still considered a threat to society. Number 2. Brian Hilly A catfishing scheme happens when someone uses another person's social media or image and pretends to be someone they're not. The victim of this scheme and also the eventual stalker is Michigan resident Brian Hilly. 29-year-old Hilly fell in love with a woman he believed he was in an online relationship with for two years. The two communicated constantly and exchanged lewd pictures and romantic messages over this period. However, he later learned that the woman he was in a relationship with was actually a man in South Africa. His romance was nothing more than a catfishing scheme. After finding this out, Brian became so enraged he decided to take revenge. The problem was, instead of aiming his vendetta on the actual person in South Africa, he decided to hunt down and investigate the woman in the pictures instead. He used the internet, jumped in chat rooms and gaming blogs to find her. The woman ended up being someone living in San Diego. The problem was, this woman's photo bucket account was hacked years ago and her photos stolen, resulting in the images of her being used without consent all over the internet. Brian took to his research diligently and secured the woman's personal information, including where she lived, her telephone numbers, email, her boyfriend's information, schools she attended, her favorite restaurants, and more. Brian was arrested a mile away from the woman's home in San Diego, traveling all the way from Michigan. He was arrested after his own family alerted authorities of his plan because he apparently told them about it. In his possession was duct tape, zip ties, and a to-do list that included getting chloroform, a knife, and a trench coat. He was intent on killing the woman along with her boyfriend. Brian Hilly was convicted of stalking and sentenced to five years in prison. He was ordered to stay away from the woman along with her family members and friends. The woman was being stalked without her knowledge, and it almost resulted in her being murdered, something that could happen to anyone anywhere who's ever posted their own images on social media. Number 1. Lisa Lambert In 1991, Lisa Lambert from Lancaster, Pennsylvania shocked everyone when she obsessively stalked her high school classmate, 16-year-old Lori Show. For a short time, Laura and Lisa were friends. Lambert had been dating Lawrence Butch Yunkin on and off for several years despite the allegation that Yunkin raped her when they first started dating. In the summer of 1991, the two were off again and Lawrence decided to ask Lori out. The first date went without incident, but on the second one, Lori later on told her parents that Yunkin raped her in the back of his van. She wanted nothing to do with him, of course, after the attack, but when Lisa found out the two of them were dating, she was livid. She became jealous of what had happened, ignoring the fact it was not even consensual. Lambert began harassing her now ex-friend, calling her every chance she got. Oftentimes, she would leave threatening and lewd messages. One time, she found Lori and her mother Hazel at a grocery store and began screaming and verbally abusing them. 
In another instance, Lambert followed her to a parking lot and physically beat her up. Lori became so terrified that she refused to go anywhere by herself. She wouldn't even stay at home alone, so as a result, her parents took her wherever they went, even on errands. On December 19, 1991, Hazel Show received a call from a woman claiming to be her daughter's guidance counselor, and she requested a meeting for the next morning at school. That same day, Lampert stopped by a local Kmart and purchased ski masks and a rope. Tabitha Buck, Lampert's friend, said she was upset at the possible legal problems she would face after attacking Lori. Lampert then informed Buck to put her hair up and not wear makeup or fingernail polish the next morning. The following day, it was Buck who knocked on Lori's apartment door. She asked her twice if her mother was around, and when she answered no, Lampert barged in from behind Buck and the struggle began. Lori tried to fight back and run for the door but was caught. The struggle went on for some time as the two girls placed a rope over Sho's neck. Buck sat down on her legs to stop her from flailing as Lampert ran a knife across the girl's throat. Lampert repeatedly cut her throat to make sure she was dead, and then the two girls left the apartment. At 7.20 a.m., Hazel returned home when a concerned neighbor asked her about the commotion upstairs. Hazel ran to the apartment to find her daughter bleeding to death in her bedroom. In her dying breath, Lori whispered, Michelle did it. Michelle was arrested the same day. Both her and Tabitha were given life sentences for the murder. Lawrence Yunkin was also arrested and sent to prison on a lesser charge since he had sat outside of the apartment in his car while the two girls murdered Shell. The crime became a national sensation. Oddly, Lampert has claimed she's innocent of the crime despite her history of harassment against Lori along with her dying words. At some point, at least one judge set her free and believed her. Eventually, this was overturned, though, and she was put back in jail after a year. By 2005, Lampert had exhausted all of her appeals and remains incarcerated. Tabitha Buck was resentenced to 28 years to life in November of 2017. She would be eligible for parole in December of 2019. So those were the top five most terrifying stalkers. Sometimes it only takes one insignificant act to trigger someone's obsession. Stalkers can be relentless until their target gives in, and sometimes their pursuits can end deadly. If you enjoy watching this video, then subscribe to our channel because two times a week we're putting out new videos for you to check out. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.